Good afternoon. Good to be with you all again. In the absence of our brother Josh, we praise God for the newborn for him and Jess. Amen. Amen to that. All right. We'll dig into it. Mark chapter 2 and Mark chapter 3. I think you guys have just recently gone through Mark. Is that, uh, am I not mistaken? Is that right? No? Have them through Mark? A little while ago? Work's still good, though. Amen. All right. Father, we thank you so much for this uh, moment in time with each other to come together collectively as one body uh, to pray, God. We thank you. To sing, we thank you, Father. Uh, to have words of encouragement and edification. We ask that you would use all those things to build us up, uh, to equip the saints for the work in the ministry, God, and to glorify you in all that we do. Pray that none of this would be in vain, Father, but it would all produce a fruit, uh, rightful for your kingdom, uh, that would bring glory to your name. We pray that this word, Father, would fall on fertile ground, uh, that nothing in our lives in this world currently, God, would choke it out, scorch it out, pluck it away, uh, but it would take deep root. Uh, thank you, Father, for this time. All that are here, you have ordained to be here. All those who are not, you ordained them not. But your word will go out and come back, and it will accomplish what it was sent out to do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me read this for us, starting with verse 23. In chapter 2 and ending in verse 6 of chapter 3. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We've got to pay attention to those words. Chapter 3, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man, with their, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, <laughs> trying to set him up so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to, said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Yeah, buddy. Uh, 
Hmm. I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, as I said, brother, home of Big Blue Nation, University of Kentucky Wildcats. That's all we got. No professional teams. But I grew up in a black Baptist, missionary Baptist church. Prior to that, I uh, spent 14 years of my life uh, in uh, Church of Christ denomination. Each of them had different standards by which to conduct ourselves. Church of Christ, the mindset was that they were the only Church of Christ. Mm. Uh, we held to baptismal regeneration, didn't fellowship with anybody else outside of that particular denomination. Mm. And there were certain things and regulations that we that we live by. Uh, moved over to the Missionary Baptist Church and you know you can get all types of things in a Baptist church you just don't know until you get there. Mm. And so uh, they held a lot to how you dressed in some ways. I remember when the Lord called me into the ministry in 2008 there and I, I, I didn't dress up unless you know I was in work or whatnot. But they always, my pastor made sure that we had to wear suits, suits and ties. Couldn't do anything with it without a suit and a tie. And the thing, the thing was, they need to know that you are a pastor by how you look. If you're not in a suit and a tie, well then you will never be up in this pulpit. You will not do anything. I remember one time I came with a, with a, with a, a suit, no tie. I got a note from one of the deacons, hey, Pastor said you need to make sure you wear a tie next time. And uh, some of the old mothers of the church fit the same way. So uh, even in seminary, there were standards. One standard was, which we may all be familiar with, this thing called Reformed theology. If you did not, some, not all, but some considered, if you did not hold to this reformed category, well, then you wouldn't fit in mm. and you might not be saved mm. or saved enough. Mm. And so that would put a mark on some guys and you weren't a part of that affiliation. And so you had these church standards, you had these and still do have these denominational standards by which we ought to live, so to speak. But the question that I had a raise with myself because I, I once was that way and maybe at maybe sometimes in the past legalistic, maybe at sometimes having standards that weren't necessarily biblical standards. Hmm. And the question I had to step back and ask myself is, um, am I making it challenging, unnecessarily challenging hmm. for people to follow Christ, Come on, for unbelievers to know Christ and know his grace and mercy, his freedom and deliverance, and believers to be day-to-day, day-to-day, day-to-day sanctified by his grace. Am I making it difficult? Um, am I making it tough for them to serve faithfully even in the local church? Uh, have we set standards that man can't reach? What standards, and this goes for us, what standards of Christianity or godliness have we held others to or currently holding others to? What values or principles take extreme precedence in our lives? What traditions have aligned, have we aligned ourselves with 
What customs and rituals do we embrace as a body of Christ? And then once you think about that, we all got them in our head right now. Once we've pondered on that for a minute, we have to ask ourselves this. Are those things, do they represent compassion, grace, mercy, self-sacrifice? Do they draw people to Christ? Well, in order to figure that out, I think what we have to do is we have to take those things that we deem as necessary and important, and we got to hold those up against what Scripture says. Examine whether or not those rules, those traditions, those standards align with God's standards. But also, those things should align so that our morals, ethics, values, they point others to Christ and the glory of God, but not us. Come on, brother. And so when we feel to do this, when our values become burdensome stumbling blocks and push people away from the one who lightens our burdens, well, we're conveying that our principles and the way that we want them carried out are much more important than God's. So I pray this wouldn't be true of us, uh, that we wouldn't esteem our personal agendas and our subjective values above what God has ordained and prescribed in his word. So let us consider these words right here in Mark chapter 2, 2 and 3. So in these passages, uh, we'll see that Jesus, confronted by the Pharisees, uh, these Jewish leaders, religious leaders, who healed the law in a very high estate, Right? The law was their God, not the God. The law was their God. Mm. And they're specifically in this text. They confront Jesus with a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. And then they, then they try to use this to discredit his ministry and bring charges against him. These men seem to be and were more concerned about the letter of the law mm. and not the spirit of the law. What do I mean by that? The letter versus the spirit. The letter of the law suggests physical obedience. Uh, physical obedience only. It's all about actions. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. It's rigid and it has nothing to do with the circumcision of the heart. Nothing to do with conviction. No brokenness that leads to repentance or confession. However, the spirit of the law requires more than just outward actions. It involves the heart and the attitude of mind. It's what the Apostle Paul refers to as circumcision of the heart in Romans chapter 2. So what, what, does, what does that tell us? It lets us know that good words, good appearance, and good deeds alone do not qualify us as being saved. Come on, brother. It doesn't make you any better than an unbeliever. See, there are plenty of unbelievers that say, thank you, Lord. Plenty of unbelievers in the habit of attending church every single week. They are, there are plenty of unbelievers who love gospel music. Plenty of unbelievers that live a morally upright life. Come on, bro. But remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. Everyone that says, Lord, Lord, y'all know the deal. You won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Then we prophesy in your name, Lord. 
Cast out demons in your name, didn't we? We, did, we performed miracles, didn't we? <laughs> Jesus says, man, you never knew me. Depart from me. Workers of iniquity. Lawless. So, beloved, as much as it depends on us, we have to examine ourselves daily to see whether or not we are of the faith. Mm-hmm. Woo! Man. So, Mark chapter 2 and 3. Right. Our 12 verses, what do they tell us? Chapter 2. One thing that we can find is that this is not just the only account in Mark chapter 2 and 3. It also talks about in the more detail in Matthew chapter 12. Also in Luke chapter uh, 6, we'll see that as well. But these last two events that, that we're going to discuss this afternoon, these last two events, they actually sum up five conflict stories. Five conflict stories uh, in the book of Mark. See, the five accounts show that uh, it shows how the Pharisees, how they followed Jesus, they constantly nagged him, and found fault with Jesus and what he was doing. Five. The first one was this. Beginning in Mark chapter 2, verse 7. It was over whether or not Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. Hmm. The second one was in verse 16 of chapter 2, over why he ate with sinners and tax collectors. In verse 18, the third uh, was why Jesus, why Jesus' disciples didn't fast like John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees. And now we come to the final two. The issue here is Sabbath work and Sabbath healing. See, this event happened about a year before Jesus' death, and it seems to have occurred in the late spring or early summer uh, when they were picking grain to eat. First of all, let's look at the conflict. Here's the conflict. Verses 23 to 24. We see the conflict right there. Jesus and his disciples were minding their own business, walking off the main roads Mm -hmm. and taking another path to pick grain. And excuse me, through the grain fields. Now, as they are walking, minding their own business, the disciples become hungry. And so they begin to pick wheat to satisfy their momentary hunger. Now, they're picking wheat. They're hungry. They need to eat. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, 20 verse 25 says this. It says that they actually have the right to pick grain. I'm pointing this out for a reason. What does it say? It says, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's grain field. So as long as you don't wield the sickle, slice it down with that that tool and pick it with your hands, you're good to go. Hmm. So they have the right to do that. However, we all know that... uh, one or multiple persons are always standing by to discredit your character, mm-hmm. right? See, this is why the Pharisees looked intently at what Jesus and his disciples were doing. They were trying to find some issues with them to discredit them and bring uh, uh, contempt against them. In this text, when you see this word, look or see right here, where it says they're looking and they're seeing, it emphasizes how horrified they were. It emphasizes that what they witnessed They looked at it as if a murder just occurred. Mm. That's how they looked at it. That's how much they emphasized keeping the law. Mm. If you broke broke the law, it's really as if you committed a murder in their eyes. This is why they're reacting the way that they are. So, man, how legal 
all these guys that just trying to when, 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 when individuals out here that are suffering that are lacking resources just need to eat they condemn these guys for that that's legalism so be warned be warned that just because you're minding your own business and doing what's right uh, does not mean everyone else is minding theirs. Come on, brother. So understand that doing what's right in the sight of God will not always be viewed as right in the sight of man. That's what we're always up against, even if they do consider themselves Christians, hmm. because they have now made their own laws, they made their own standards. Okay, so understand that. See, this is why we must be mindful also of our lives. We have to be mindful of our life and doctrine. Come on, brother. Even more important. See, even when Paul says in Romans 14, 16, he says, uh, not to let what we regard as, e or as good be spoken evil of. He's cautioning us to discern how we live privately, but also publicly. Even though what we're eating, what we're drinking, what we're listening to, who we're hanging out with isn't sinful, we sometimes need to think about the perception or how it could come off concerning our Christian witness. All right. Yeah. But why? I mean, we might be thinking, man, it ain't that deep. <laughs> well, it sort of is. Because everyone, like the Pharisees, is not believing the best in you at all times. That's why. That's why. See, there are many like the Pharisees trying to discredit you. And he's like, use discernment. Be, be discerning of that. Yeah, you can do all of this. You can do all of that. But I remember when Paul is dealing with a particular individual in the church, and I'll probably read it later in the Corinthians passage. He says, well, this is lawful. Well, Paul says, yeah, but it's not beneficial. <clears throat> yeah, this is, uh, this, but this is lawful. He's like, yeah, but all things don't build up. So even though it's lawful, we must be mindful and discerning. And in Jesus' case, the Pharisees, they will do everything they can to find fault in you no matter what you do because they found fault in Jesus. And so before Jesus responds in verse 24, notice this. Notice that the text does not say Jesus himself plucked any ears of wheat. Think about that. If he had plucked or picked grain, would that have given the Jews more ammunition to use against them? Instead of asking, why are your disciples? They could have asked, well, why do you? The fingers would have been pointing directly at Jesus. But the disciples were not the aim or the main agenda of the Pharisees and the Jews. See, they, they could care less really about the disciples, about, about them during this time. Their focus was primarily on Jesus. See, I believe Jesus not picking uh, the grain gave Jesus the advantage of defending others, hmm. not himself, others, and forced the Pharisees to question the fundamental principle, which is at hand. And this is, is it lawful? Hmm. Is it lawful? See, instead of attacking Jesus's person, is it lawful? That's why he didn't do anything. You can't attack my person. You can't attack my character because it's all good over here. Now we got to talk about the principle of the matter. Again, this is why we must be mindful of what we say and how we live, right? 
So don't give don't 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 give anyone a reason to attack your character, because if you do, you'll always be worried about yourself. We will always be worried about defending ourselves. Don't allow this life to be more about defending yourself than God's word. Defending your word over God's. You don't want that to happen because what happens is self-centered representation of us always leads to a misrepresentation of God. Hmm. Always. Because it's self-consumed. And so Jesus does this and he does not physically do anything because what was at hand was the law. The law itself was the issue. Not Christ. And so allow the word of God to be the issue and not you. Come on, bro. So we see the conflict. Now we see the response coming up. So how does Jesus respond? In verse, verses 25 and 26. He responds by pointing them to 1 Samuel chapter 21. This is about David and his men. The consecrated bread was put on the table in the tabernacle, if you read through that. The tabernacle, which is the house of God, verse 26. Each Sabbath, they put bread on the tabernacle, um, on the table in the tabernacle each Sabbath. And what this symbolized was uh, God's presence and God's provision. Um, or some would say that it represented Israel before God. We can see it in Exodus chapter 25. And this consecrated bread was eaten only by the priest at the end of the week. David and his men were not priests. But Jesus implied that what they did was justified because they were famished. They were in need. So what happens? Jesus set forth the fundamental principle that human needs should supersede and precede ceremonial laws. Human need precedes ceremonial laws and supersedes ceremonial laws. What does it mean to love your neighbor? What does it mean to care for the widows and orphans? What does it mean to meet the needs of others? What does it mean to, as we see in Acts, just giving to the needs of the church so that everybody may have equal? It supersedes the ceremonial laws of what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees could have objected that Jesus' disciples were not starving. But the point remains that that the Sabbath observance should not be reduced to legalistic restrictions. Come on, See, the Pharisees, of course, they know 1 Samuel chapter 21. They, they, they know the Old Testament. But they fail to note how this chapter interprets Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. They weren't doing no biblical theology. They, 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 don't, they don't know that stuff. And what does it say in Exodus 20? It says, but the seventh day, the seventh day, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you should not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner within your gates. In Matthew's account, which was more detailed than Mark and Luke's account, he reports that the second argument of Jesus, that the priest in the very temple of God 
actually violate the ceremonial law of Sabbath rest. How? By their hard work in butchering the sacrificial animals. This work is prescribed even by God himself to the priest. They must butcher the animals. Hmm. Jesus was, Jesus was saying, let's not get so caught up in the letter of the law and works-based righteousness because technically the priests work in providing the sacrifice. Hmm. It's like, Brock, man, if Lord's Supper Sunday, man, you got to take three hours sweating and, and, and working hard just to cut up some wafers or something like that, hmm. just to pour out some juices and cups, man. That would almost be the equivalent, not as hard as what they used to do, but something like that. Yeah. That would be considered some hard work. Mm -hmm. And this is what they did, but this is what the Pharisees were actually neglecting. <laughs> they didn't consider it in the totality of it. And so God cares far more about the, the proper spiritual condition of the heart of man rather than the outward observance of his ceremonial regulations. <laughs> he does. So what does this even say to us? Man, what is there anything that in connection to God's law, God's regulations, do we say, hey, man, I am going to pass up this sister or this brother who is in need just so I can make it to church on time? Mm -hmm. Brother, I'll pray for you later because I got to make this phone call that's really not necessary right there in the moment but yeah I need to do that before I even like pray man for you I mean how how often I'm not saying this is true of you but how often have we and others just passed up something that needed to to be a need that needed to be fulfilled in order to fulfill our own desires yeah I've been guilty of that. And I ought not be so. So Jesus meant that human beings, again, were not created for, were not created to observe the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was created for the benefit of men. So in verses 27 to 28, we see that. He said the Sabbath, Pharisees, and Jews is, is not an end in itself, and it is not the greatest good. Hmm. Jesus affirmed his right to determine Sabbath observance because he is the God-man. He created it. He said, I made it, so I can actually determine it. So the principal God ordered in his law regarding the Sabbath was that it might be a blessing for man. See, this day, he has offered man physical rest and more importantly, time to attend to their spiritual needs. But the Jews have reversed it. God has given us so many blessings in this life, in this creation, that we have reversed. And we've reversed it for our own wrongdoings. He says, man, enjoy this. Glorify me in this. And then we reverse it and we make it a restriction. We make it a regulation. We make it a standard and we make it our own gods. He says, man, don't 
worship the creation, worship the God of the creation. Come on, brother. But you reversed it. The Jews reversed it. They treated man as if he had been created to keep the Sabbath laws. The entire ceremonial law, all the forms of Jewish worship in the Sabbath with this divine regulations was given to Israel by God, Yahweh, as part of the grand plan of salvation to be shaped by Jesus, the Messiah. The Sabbath was part of the preparation to fit Israel for its coming savior. See, that is why Jesus, he calls himself the son of man in verse 10, because he is a man, but yet he is more than man. He's the incarnate son and the Messiah, Christ and the father Yahweh instituted, created, established the Sabbath for man's benefit. And Jesus now here, he was now here to honor the Sabbath and fulfill the divine Sabbath law. So, Jesus, based on all of that, Jesus would be the last person to let his disciples become guilty of violating the Sabbath. Hmm. Based on that. And so now, chapter 3, let's go ahead and establish that no one would even claim that it was lawful or right to do evil or kill on the Sabbath. See, the, 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 the obvious alternative to that is that it might be right to do good and to save a life. To heal is to do good. To do nothing is to do evil. Mm. To heal is to save a life. Not to heal is the equivalent of killing. Man, if you got it in you to heal, well, brother, heal. If you got it in you to save, well, sister, save. Because to do the opposite is killing. It's to do evil. But no one answered. They were just like this. Quiet. Looking at you. And the thing is, they know he was right. But they didn't want to give him the satisfaction. Just looking at him. Well, I know this brother's right, but you know what? My pride ain't going to let me agree with him. No one answered. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Surprisingly, they just kept quiet. And it says that Jesus became angry. They became angry. He. Angry and emotion that among humans is often sinful. However, Jesus' anger was not immoral because it was directed toward evil and because it was controlled. Perhaps this, it was this righteous indignation. How do we feel when we share, proclaim the good news to unbelievers or even proclaim the good news, proclaim the gospel even to a believer that needs to be encouraged who just might be in sin? And when they don't respond in the way they would want them to, how does that make us feel? Where do our emotions go? And do we try to help manufacture what they should be doing? Here's the thing, we're not Jesus. Because even on our best days, when we get angry at that, is it righteous indignation? Or is it the selfishness that's rooted there? Because I want you to do this for me. 
I want you to do this for this and this and this person or this purpose. As opposed to just planting that seed, watering that seed, you know what, I ain't got nothing to do with that. God's got it. Come on, brother. But only Jesus has the right for this sort of anger because he's God. He was upset at their stubborn of hearts, which could be translated more literally as their hardness of hearts. But the word hardness often takes on an additional idea right here. It actually means a willful blindness. Jesus was angry not only at the insensitivity towards suffering, but at the entire system of legalism where, excuse me, where the letter is more important than the spirit. The willful blindness is angry at because he knows they know better. Come on, he says, y'all know the word. New Testament wasn't there yet, but y'all know the Old Testament word. Y'all know that I have come to fulfill. <laughs> I've come to fulfill the law. And yet you still ignore me intentionally. You know who I am. You don't want to accept who I am. And he's angry at that. He says, how hard must your heart be? To not accept me who can deliver you from that hardness. How hard must your heart be to not believe in me, your savior? Uh -huh. Who else are you looking for? I'm right in front of you. But yet you still try to condemn me. You're still trying to kill me. You're still trying to conjure up lies against me. Hmm. All because of the letter of the law. Instead of the God that made the law. And so he's angry about that. And yet, in spite of all that, he produced this miracle to heal this man with indignation and sadness, even in his heart. Jesus didn't do it with joy. The text says he did it with indignation, he did it with anger and sadness in his heart. Christ labored to help these men understand. He made the truth about the Sabbath so plain that a child could see it. It seemed to be all in vain, seemingly did. But Jesus, ever so faithful and faithful to the Sabbath, heals the man. He doesn't wait until tomorrow to heal this man to avoid criticism. Mm. No, he does it on the spot. Come on, what does the Bible tell us in Proverbs 3? Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have it with you. Hmm. And so what does he do? He just orders the man to stretch out his hand so that all the synagogue may see. The notable thing is that Jesus actually did nothing physically. He did. Nor did he say that the hand should be healed. He didn't do anything physically to the hand. And he didn't tell the man that your hand is healed. All he asked the man to do was to stretch out his hand. He says, just operate in obedience. The small act of obedience. To make an act of simple obedience right there. And it was recovered by the almighty Jesus. The act right there, <laughs> I think, actually made the case a lot more difficult for the enemies of Jesus. What could they fasten on to to accuse Jesus of actually doing work? of healing on the Sabbath right there. 
Because even their crooked minds would have difficulty establishing the charge that Jesus had actually worked on the Sabbath because he didn't do anything physically. And he didn't say anything verbally, commanding a miracle. So it was indeed not wrong, even according to the legalism. Well, here's the thing. What's still sad is this. There's still no hope for these guys. Even after that man was healed, they don't praise God for working a miracle. They don't rejoice with the brother. They simply walk out. <laughs> they walk out, leave, and conspire with the Herodians with how to kill Jesus. How blind and selfish and arrogant and prideful must a professing God followers these Pharisees. I mean, how can they be that way just to act this way? And this is why we must always, beloved, we must be so, 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 so diligent to pray for one another and not pray, P-R-E-Y, on one another. Uh, because daily supplications must be made for all of us saints. Must be made uh, so that we can walk in, in humility and walk in biblical righteousness, uh, not to judge and condemn and to try to take out one another. No. Now, I'm almost done, but pay attention to, pay attention to these Herodians. These Herodians, they were Jews who supported Herod Antipas, and they supported Rome, and they actually opposed the Pharisees. Weird. But strangely enough, as much as they disliked each other, the Pharisees and the uh, Herodians, they came together to kill Jesus. I think it's pretty amazing that common enemies can become strange bedfellows. It's, uh, it's unbelievable how people who don't even like each other uh, will come together, uh, <laughs> who, who, who won't even reconcile under any circumstances, but to take you out, they'll come together for evil purposes, especially for Christians. We've seen that in today's world, how you got all types of opposing views, and whether it be political or whether it be social or spiritual, come together to remove the presence of God in so many spaces in this world, in this country. That's how Satan works. But, so, why did they go to the Herodians, these Jews, these, these, these Pharisees, rather? The Pharisees go to the Herodians because, in Galilee, the Pharisees couldn't do anything. They could do nothing by themselves. But in Jerusalem, they had the Sanhedrin, okay? See, the Jewish court of justice was the Sanhedrin. Uh, that was given limited authority over certain religious and civil matters. So the Pharisees tried to gain the following of Herod and the Herodians, who ruled Galilee, hoping that he would take their side, which would permit them and the Sanhedrin to exercise limited power to charge Jesus with blasphemy. Look at everything that they went through just to kill Jesus. That is a lot. That's a waste of time. That's a waste of effort, man. I'm like, man, I'm not going through all of this. But that shows how, how caught up they were in 
making and establishing the law as the centerpiece of faith, uh, as their God. Let's kill this big God for the sake of the small God. Wow. Mm. Yep. But beloved, ultimately they actually succeeded. They succeeded. They succeeded in conspiring to destroy Jesus. They had accomplished their actions to kill him, or so they thought. Uh, since they had spent so much time and misguided after reversing the role that man is for the Sabbath and that the Sabbath is not for the man, unknowingly, God gave them their wish. See, they thought that uh, they were doing God a favor by strictly maintaining the law and Sabbath through their means, which was killing Christ. But little did they know that God was using them to fulfill the law and prophecy through the, crucif the crucifixion of Jesus, which would uh, establish the true Sabbath in Christ. They didn't know they was doing that. See, they thought they had taken his life, but he actually willingly gave his life. Right. Sin blinded them so they could not see that their justification for right standing before a holy God was right before them. An overconsumption of works righteousness removed their ability to find ultimate rest. See, try to imagine the exchanges that would have happened between Jesus and the Pharisees. They say, we must sacrifice. Jesus says, nah, I am your sacrifice. They say, we must keep the law. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law. They say, we must honor the Sabbath day. Jesus says, I am the Sabbath, the rest is in me. They say, but only the righteous will see God. Jesus says, without my blood, you'll never be righteous. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So you're out of bounds. That would have been that exchange. And in and of ourselves, just like the Pharisees couldn't, we cannot see God in and of ourselves. And we are never qualified in ourselves to be in God's kingdom. However, you can be, will be, and are, if you have trusted in Christ, you'll be qualified through the blood of the Lamb. Christ Jesus, by repenting of our sins, placing our faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, and following him as our Lord and Savior over our life. Pharisees cannot. It's too late for them. They could have, but they missed that train. And so, beloved, the thing is, yes, on two sides of this, have we made it hard for people to follow? Or have we been the people that it was made hard for us to follow? The message that should be proclaimed is Matthew 11. That come to me all who have laden are heavy laden. <laughs> come to me and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. He says, man, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He gets gentle and lowly. He will give rest for your weary souls. That's the Christ that we serve. He doesn't place an unnecessary burden on us that we cannot keep. Mm. Matter of fact, the burden that he places on us, he keeps. Come on, brother. The rest is in him. That's why he's talking about the Sabbath. Like, y'all don't have to work for righteousness anymore. It's already been done and paid for. Find your rest in me by trusting in me. And so I pray for all of us this afternoon. Thank God that we're no longer the Pharisees. 
Praise God that he came and he saved us, that we believed in him. Praise God that he has taken the burden of this world and carried it to the furthest and furthest and furthest and the highest of the heavens, to the right hand of the Father. And now the only burden that he places on us is to glorify him in our lives and deeds, words and deeds, to proclaim the good news, to preach the gospel with faithfulness, with boldness, to proclaim what thus saith the Lord. We plant the seeds and we water it. And that is it. So how much do we trust God? Or are we trying to manufacture some man-made status, some man-made regulations, mm. restrictions, some standards? Mm. Are we? Have we burdened ourselves? Have we burdened kids, spouses, friends, colleagues with a works-based faith? Or do we yet understand that our works do not save us, but simply show us that and others that we are saved? Come on, brother. Is there anything or any person in our life that we value more than God? Hmm. How much time, money, resources, and thought are we giving to a particular thing? Because we have to remember that, again, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And then was the last time we stopped in the midst of doing work, uh, doing something important, or while being self-consumed, and made it a point to stop and to pray for someone, to serve someone, to call or text someone, to check on them, or even randomly stop by to give someone in need some, some food or some clothes or even a word of encouragement. So even in church, uh, we can be overly concerned sometimes with time, getting in, getting out, getting food, getting home, but neglect to see about our, our fellow members with whom we're in covenant community with. And so Philippians 2 leaves us with this. We do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of us Look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And one church father says this in regards to uh, self-righteousness. He says, the most damnable and malicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man is that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all-holy God. Father, we thank you for this uh, reminder in your word that um, your standard and your motive is pure, mm. ours is not. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to remind us, convict us, and encourage us to pursue you, mm. to pursue your righteousness, mm. to pursue your standards, and not to hold others to ours. Because if you had, Father, none of us would be here today. And so we thank you for the blood of Christ that covers all of us. And because the blood of Christ covers us, God, you don't see us as filth and unrighteousness. But when you look at us, you see Christ. So we thank you that he was our propitiation, God. We thank you, God, that he covered us. We thank you for our big brother, Lord. 
And so we pray that uh, by his stripes, yes, we are healed. But in the spirit of that, God, that we would help to heal the stripes and serve our brothers and sisters faithfully because of what he did for us. Mm. And we pray that every single work and word that we do, how we live, points others not to us, but to you. And it's to your name that we give the glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.